Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey everyone, and welcome again to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast. And today we're going to talk about sibling estrangement. It is a highly, highly expressed topic. It's going to be talked about so much, especially as you get into adult stages of your life where you're not always connected with siblings living at home all the time, so it can easily happen. To help talk about this today is a Chicago-based writer, Franchima Chapman. She has written several award-winning books, her latest nonfiction work being Brother, Sister's Estrangement, Sibling Estrangement, and The Road to Reconciliation, um, which has been called a terrific, compassionate, much-needed book about broken family relationships and the path to healing. She also writes blogs on Sibling estrangement for psychologytoday.com. Uh, how are you going today, Fern? Fine. It's great to be with you, Dina. Uh, so, for people who don't know a lot about you, um, do you mind telling me a little bit, telling us a little bit more about what you do and sort of how you got into it? Well, uh, I was a journalist for many years, and my life took a very uh, sharp turn when my mother, who had fled Nazi Germany and never spoke of her history, came to me and said she wanted to go back to her town. She was 65 at that time, and I was in my 30s and pregnant with my third child. We went back, and it was a very small town where everyone had awareness of what they had or had not done during this crucial moment in history. And I felt I had this remarkable window on an experience, which led me to writing books. And so my first book was a memoir called Motherland, where I actually bring you along on the journey of returning to this little town. One book led to another, and my most recent work, as you said, Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, addresses the very difficult and uncomfortable topic of sibling estrangement. I have endured and recently reconciled, but endured a very long estrangement with my only brother. And when I had this chance to reconcile, I wanted to find out everything I could about it. I looked for a book on the topic. There was none. And so I decided to take it on myself. Wow, that is such an inspirational way that led you even further with taking, with being a writer and being a journalist and just sort of making it a lot more personal as well. I think that's that's an incredible achievement in itself. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think that's a good point. I've actually brought my personal experiences to the page in a number of different ways. And I've written several different books. 
Um, many of them related to my mother's childhood immigration story as an unaccompanied minor. But uh, the most recent one, I was so devastated by this estrangement, and I really couldn't find anything about it. And remarkably, my brother, with whom I reconciled, was willing to support me on this. And not only did I write the book and interview others to find out their stories and, of course, report on the social science of estrangement, which we will talk about, but my brother actually wrote the afterword. So you read my perspective through the whole book, and then the very last chapter is his statement about what happened and why it happened. And he has a little different take than I do. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing how that how that sort of works out where it's no matter how long the argument is you forget the original argument the original um, drift apart you just sort of know that that's how you feel so it's it's a very interesting take on how two people sort of perceive what the original argument was about. Well, interestingly, and this is true in many cases, it's not a specific argument. Sometimes it's just general drifting and people making different choices, which ultimately lead to a cutoff. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of the actual estrangement, he and I spent a lot of time talking about it. And ultimately, I was able to understand more of why it happened and how it happened Whereas when I was in the dark, I was simply ruminating and I only had my own voice in my head to cons- console myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think I think that it definitely makes a difference when you can hear the other side for sure. Right. Um, so talking about you a little bit more right before we get into the topic, um, we're going to play a little game called Get to Know the Guest. It's kind of like an, a little mm-hmm. icebreaker. Um, so when I say these first, those few keywords, just say the first thing that sort of comes to your head. Okay. All right. So the first one is book. So the most recent book I read and thoroughly enjoyed was called Southern Discomfort by Tina Clark. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a book about how a family in Mississippi copes with some of the civil rights issues during the 60s. It was very compelling. Wow, that's that's amazing. That's an amazing um, read for sure. How about movie? So I haven't had many t- much time to watch movies, but I have watched a, a few um, series such as A Place to Call Home or The French Village. A Place to Call Home is probably one of my favorite, favorite movies to watch. <laughs> I, I cannot watch it enough. <laughs> the acting in it already just amazes me. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot from it. I did not know much about the history of uh, Australia during World War II and after World War II. So it was fascinating from that perspective. Yep. It's it's a Nazi classic here for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about podcasts? So the Memory Palace is one I enjoy. Um, Some of the neuroscience podcasts like, uh, oh, I can't even think of the names of them, but but, uh, anything about neuroscience always fascinates me in psychology. Wow, that's that's amazing. How about um, famous role model? 
So because of my mother's story, I became fascinated with trauma and how trauma is passed from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. There is an amazing woman named Rachel Yehuda, who is a pioneer in understanding the biology of post-traumatic stress disorder. And she actually explores how the effects of stress and trauma are transmitted biologically from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. Actually, your DNA is altered by trauma. And she studies both large and small traumas that mark lives and those of our families. And she's actually studied a lot of Holocaust survivors and their children, as well as some of the children of the 9-11 attacks. And that's something that has always interested me because, as you can imagine, living as the child of a Holocaust refugee um, you feel their experience, even though you never had that experience. So in a lot of ways, it's very palpable, but you have no context. I've honestly never even heard of um, trauma being passed biologically. That's something that's totally new, new research You can to look me. up the topic of, Dina, you can look up the topic of epigenetics and mm-hmm. you will learn all about it. It's very new research. Rachel Yehuda is at the center of this. And um, I really think she deserves an incredible amount of applause as well as place in uh, science. Well, I'll definitely, definitely be looking up her name straight after this. You can count on that. Um, How about a favorite course that you've completed? Okay. Uh, I haven't actually had time to do courses, but I have been working on a sibling estrangement writing journal. It's called The Sibling Estrangement Journal. It is a guide to exploring your own experiences through writing. And the whole idea is that it's a form of narrative therapy. You don't have to talk to a therapist. You can read some of the blog posts that I've compiled in this book. And then I've assembled questions which challenge you to think differently about what you've experienced and what you know about your relationship with your sibling. And the whole goal is to reframe some of your experience. Um, Not everybody can afford a therapist. Many people who are estranged don't like to discuss it with anybody because they're ashamed. And so this is an opportunity to do it on the page. I I think that's amazing, actually, having that space to sort of collect your thoughts in a way that's very private and very personal to you. You don't have to have any filters against what you say or be correct in a sort of way. You can just say how you feel. And that's that's pretty amazing, actually, to have that available. Well, a lot of there's a lot of research that corroborates this idea that if you write from the heart for 20 minutes a day, you will relieve yourself of the burden of some of the deep emotions that are disturbing your well-being. And um, this is a wonderful way, really, and it's one I've used myself. Um, It's very effective because you no longer feel you have to carry it around. It's on the page. It's been recorded. Oh, that's, that's spectacular. And I think that should be a huge achievement for and a huge life lesson as well as um option in order to really say how you feel to have that available is is amazing 
and it's private. So yes. um, you don't have to show it to anybody. It's between you and the page. Yes, that's perfect. Exactly what I think everybody everybody should have available to them is some ability to express yourself in a way, no matter how personal it is. Well, thank you. I uh, hope it's well received. It is a companion in some ways to the book that you and I are discussing here, Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, Sibling Estrangement and the Road to Reconciliation. So while this book that we're discussing does three things, it is my personal story with my brother, as I mentioned earlier. It also examines the social science behind sibling estrangement. And then I did a survey, which included about 100 people, and they revealed some of what has happened to them. And I was able to include some of their voices in the book as well. And so um, I'm weaving these three elements throughout Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, whereas the new book, the sibling estrangement book, is really a, a, a workshop on the page. But that's... That's going to be an amazing companion. Like you said, it's going to be such a good collaboration to have between the two of them and take the lessons that you've read about and put it into your own personal practice. So it's a great combination of the two, I definitely think. Thanks, Dina. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So we have you here today to talk about sibling estrangement, sibling relationships. First of all, we love to start off our interview with asking a guest what they think their definition of family is as it's not always a very good description to have in a dictionary because it's so many different versions of it but what do you see family as being defined as well I don't narrowly define family largely because I couldn't narrowly define family if you are estranged from your only sibling and you only consider that brother and his wife and those children, family, you have nothing. And mm -hmm. so I have had to have a much broader view and actually something called voluntary kin, people who step in as sisters and brothers, um, even though they're not biologically related. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really important aspect of well-being if you are cut off or estranged from family members. Mm -hmm. No, I think I think that's amazing. And I love seeing that there are so many different ways that family can be, that people can be family to you, especially having that connection with someone, um, even if they're not blood related to you. I mean, they say blood against everything, but sometimes you create your own family, you build your own family, you choose the people that you want to have in your life as as you said, voluntary, voluntary kin. And that is definitely something that should be, should have such hold to what the definition of family is. Yeah, I think we're way too invested in biology um, and not invested enough in the great value of kinship uh, simply through connection. Yep. No, I completely agree with you there. I mean, not every family member is family, if you think about it like that. Not every person you're blood related to can be considered family. So having that distinction is, like you said, you'd have nothing if you were, 
if you consider only them, only blood related people to be family and you're estranged from them, that does sort of put a, um, put a lack of connection there in your definition. So having that is, is definitely important, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. I have connections, friendships that go back decades. And mm -hmm. those people have seen me through the worst of life and the best. And um, at, at times when my own blood relatives were not available. That is, that is amazing to hear. It's amazing to have, have that connection as long. And I, I love that so much. Thank you. Uh, so what do you think the position of a family is in today's society? Like we said, it hasn't all these different forms now. Do you think that it still holds the same importance as it did decades ago? I would say no. Yeah. <laughs> I think when, the nature of the family is really changing. Um, there's been a profound metamorphosis in the Western world during the 21st century. And really only a minority of American households are traditional two-parent nuclear families. And mm -hmm. in America, only a third of these families exist. So that tells you a lot. Um, the family is no longer the fundamental and exclusive source of emotional and financial support and the transmission of values and the spiritual identity. And there are a lot of trends that have sort of underscored these big, big changes. People, for example, young people are postponing or repudiating marriage and delaying child rearing and having children. Baby boomers no longer live as their parents and grandparents did. They live farther away from their sisters and brothers and have much more limited contact with the siblings. Um, previous generations were glued by these lifelong marriages and large families. And of course, neither of those things really are as relevant anymore. Boomers don't, they have many more divorces and fewer offspring. So I would say that there's so many trends that are changing the family. Now that's not to say across the board, there are some families from traditional immigrant cultures who cling to a more traditional approach. But, um, and, and some of those children, those brothers and sisters, feel an obligation to maintain those relationships and to honor their parents. Uh, working class and poor families, actually, compared to the middle class, tend to have stronger sibling ties as well. But I want to say here that sibling estrangement cuts across all cultures, all classes. And, of course, I always think of the um, Meghan Markle, who has a terrible connection to her half-brother and half-sister. So you can see that this is something that happens to all of us. It's not just one group of people. Yeah, and I definitely, like, when it came to, especially the Meghan Markle case, there was such stigma against her being detached from her family when somehow, it's if you look at the family, there's the, sh the mental health that's invested in that as well. Looking after their her own mental right. well-being definitely plays a part, in my that opinion, is, for that. 
That is such an important point. And I think I thank you for raising it now before we even get into this. Um, mm-hmm. There are some relationships that are so toxic that you have to separate yourself to protect yourself for your own well-being. And there are a lot of people who are in these estranged relationships who basically said, I can't do this anymore because I'm getting injured and this person is too toxic for me. And that's actually something that should be respected, not criticized. Yep. No, I I definitely agree with that. And I think when you count it as family, exactly what we were saying before, if choosing your family somehow allows you to choose the people that offer you so much comfort and support through life and not family members, not don't always do that or aren't always able to sort of understand you the way um, your created family can. Right. And there are a lot of factors why that happens. Favoritism in the family and jealousies and sibling rivalry makes it a lot harder to sustain those relationships. And in fact, what I also wanted to say to you is this is a largely unreported phenomenon But some of the studies indicate that as many as one in three people struggle with a sibling relationship, and they describe that relationship as apathetic, strained, or estranged. And in many ways, because there's so much stigma attached to sibling estrangement and shame, that it's almost like a Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's an amazing statistic, actually. One in three siblings, one of three family, that's, I, I'm actually baffled by that. Honestly, I did not, cannot believe that it's that many. And it's still not something that's talked about widely enough. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that they're cut off. That may mean that they have a limited relationship or that they've decided that they're going to just keep it very superficial. But uh, the point is that it's indifferent, estranged, strained, apathetic, one of those words that that really indicates they're not getting support from that sibling. Yep. Well, no matter how it's described, it's still, that statistic is still pretty amazing to me. And it, it's still being such a stigmatized, um, like a taboo subject for anyone in this world when the statistics are that high. You know, there's so much pressure to sustain a certain family construct. And nobody really wants to talk about it when it's unsustainable. It's uncomfortable. Um, We have a fantasy that surrounds what the family should be. And it's reinforced as the holidays approach. It's reinforced by marketing and the holidays. And for many of us, we simply don't fit into that framework. Yep. Yep. No, I definitely agree. I definitely agree with that. I think especially when it comes to how you see, I mean, you see a lot of movies and films and even read news articles about families coming together. And a lot of those people aren't, a lot of real people aren't really represented in the fact that they don't always have family. They don't always have their biological family with them to visit in the holidays. It's more people that they've created themselves and a family that they've put together and handpicked to be able to be there for them. So 
yeah, I think I think um, ha- having that lack of representation definitely adds that stigma to what um, sibling relationships, what family relationships are supposed to look like. There are assumptions, Dina, that you have an intact family. And so mm-hmm. people often stick the knife in your back and you don't they don't even realize it by saying really simple things like, Happy holidays. I hope you're going to get some nice time with your family. Well, some of us don't have family. Some of yep. us are estranged from family. Yep. So, yep. you know, and, and I mean, it's, it's it's funny because I've heard radio stations hosts say things like that. And they don't realize that so many of us are spending the holidays with our very, uh, very small family or maybe even alone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is that definitely adds to that lack of conversation that's happening, a lack of empathy, that lack of even acknowledgement, the fact that not everyone has that kind of connection to where, to another person or family members that they can call family or can call, um, call up at any time and get together. Like it's such a, it's such a point of view that's not always really discussed and not wanting to be discussed. So even hearing that statistic and getting that that um, lack of representation is still quite amazing. And of course, in our country, and I think all around the world, the political situation in general has created a lot of animosity. Mm-hmm. And that animosity has trickled into families and shows up at the Thanksgiving dinner table or the Christmas table. And um, it becomes much, much worse. And there are more and more divided families. It's very difficult. During COVID, many people didn't get together with families and found it to be a great relief because (laughs) it can be tiresome to have to deal with somebody's politics who you don't subscribe to. Yep. No, I think that's, uh, honestly, I, I definitely can see how the lockdowns would have been a great, great comfort to to a fair few people in this in this society. Um, so what do you think the role of parents and maybe some extended family members have in sort of shaping or even sort of rectifying the disconnect between siblings? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I can go in a hundred different directions, mm-hmm. but... Let, let me just say a couple of things. Um, in childhood, brothers and sisters are our first playmates, and they are very crucial in instilling in one another certain necessary social qualities like tolerance and generosity and loyalty. And these things eventually come into play when you become an adult. And one psychotherapist has actually said that our siblings are our first marriage partners because they essentially teach us qualities of getting along. Mm -hmm. Um, Siblings typically spend more time together than almost anyone else. And for the fortunate, those relationships continue for 80 years, outlasting most friendships, marriages, and of course, your relationship with your parents. Children's perceptions and feelings and hurts and resentments uh, from these original experiences with siblings often can haunt us. 
And what I mean by that is there's something called sibling transference. So what I'm saying is we take these early experiences into adult friendships and relationships. And sometimes we see that partner of ours treating us the way our brother treated us or our sister treated us. So these relationships are the blueprint for all other relationships. And that has been largely overlooked. One interesting fact, Dana, is that Freud, who did, what, six volumes on human mind and behavior, mentioned siblings maybe five times. Siblings have been largely understudied. And so this is all very new and interesting. Up until the last 10 or 15 years, siblings were not studied at all. Wow. Yeah. They weren't even they weren't even discussed. It wasn't something that anyone no, even mentioned. Well, Freud mentioned siblings five times in six volumes, but beyond wow. that, very little. Not, there just have not been studies until recently. Now, I can tell you that what has been discovered is these sibling relationships are crucial, and they actually and I can run through a few of the studies which show that. Adolescents who perceived that their siblings validated their beliefs and feelings reported higher levels of self-esteem. They often did better academically if they felt that their siblings were behind them. Um, Mm -hmm. Children at risk of poverty, family discord, parental mental illness or divorce uh, also had a better chance of becoming a well-adjusted adult if they had a sibling who was supporting them. Um, Sibling support and closeness is very closely associated with less loneliness, lower levels of depression, and greater satisfaction in life. And actually, one of the most interesting studies I found was a Harvard study, which showed that there is a strong, if there's a strong sibling connection um, in college, that was the best one of the best ways to determine what kind of well-being that person would have. So in other words, if you had a good sibling relationship when you were in college, you had a better chance of emotional health in your later years. Why why do you think that it's just not spoken about until now? And why do you think, I mean, siblings, you always from, I don't know how many years, but from a long time, you've had if you had one child, you're the one child, but if you had siblings, there's two. So why do you think it hasn't been such a huge conversation up until recently? Well, um, a couple of things. I mean, certainly some social scientists have determined that we have a deep need to belong and actually, (laughs) um, You know, there are a lot of studies that show just how the hierarchy of needs by Abraham Maslow basically shows you it's in a color coded pyramid, the basic human requirements. And of course, the need to belong ranks just behind essentials like food and water and shelter and sleep, physical activity. So you can see that the need to belong has always been acknowledged. What I don't think was as well understood is that the family is kind of the original constellation where we can connect in a group and form 
deep relationships to belong. And um, so it's only natural that that would transfer, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. But why hasn't it fully been addressed? I don't think, I think there's simply been a minimization of the importance of these relationships. And because it wasn't studied, nobody recognized how crucial they are. Now, some works are beginning to come out recently about, as I said, the sibling transference and um, the importance of the sibling relationship. Mm-hmm. But it really was unacknowledged. And, you know, we we don't, as we said at the beginning, nobody's talking about sibling estrangement, which as far as I'm concerned, sibling estrangement is one of the most painful experiences a human being can endure simply because it's not a death, it's not final, but it is a mournful experience. And what you end up doing is endlessly mourning the living. The person Mm -hmm. who you thought would be there for you has made this choice to take a separate path and they're walking the earth, but, and they have your phone number, but they're not calling. And Mm -hmm. that's a profound rejection. And, you know, we're not very good at handling rejection. And actually there's a really interesting study by a man named Dr. Kipling Williams. He's a a professor of psychological sciences at Purdue, and he's noted for doing all these incredibly important and unique studies on ostracism. And what one of the most important things he discovered is that when someone is shunned, even by a stranger, even only briefly, Dr. Williams has found that he or she experiences a strong, harmful reaction, activating the same parts of the brain that register physical pain. Wow. Yeah. So So in other words, when you're rejected, your brain is lighting up in the same ways as when you're hit in the face. Wow. So that's, so it's definitely a, it's similar to, I guess, from my understanding, sort of like a breakup when you go through that loss of someone in your life, no matter if it's a, friendship, relationship, sibling. And I mean, they always talk about friendship and relationship, but sibling is not something that they add so commonly to the other, to the other two or as impactful as the other two. And so hearing that definitely sort of reminds me of that. It's very similar to just being no longer having that person in your life. Well, if they are your first marriage partners, it makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) Um, exactly. It's exclusion that can, exclusion can cause pain that Mm -hmm. cuts deeper and lasts longer than a physical injury. And that is Dr. Williams' major discovery. And Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important, given what you've just said, Dina, to recognize that these are your first playmates. Yep. So imagine yep. what it feels like to be rejected by your first playmate. Yep. I can I can definitely imagine that. And that, I mean, I can definitely re- relate it to how the sort of that first love feeling, like the, the first person in your life that you had that kind of relationship to, and then relating it to a sibling that's pr- practically been there since de- your day one or their day one. And it's, 
it's um yeah i mean timing timing that kind of relationship by like 10 because you've been that's the first person you've known your entire life you know and there's another important piece to this which is they are your shared historian yeah they lived in the same family mm-hmm. and even though they didn't have the same perspective on everything they know what you went through And to lose that connection is extraordinarily painful. And when I wasn't speaking to my brother for decades, I often wondered if I remembered things accurately. I would often think to myself, does he remember these things as well? I yearned for someone to corroborate my own memories. Mm -hmm. And that's an important function in a life. Yeah. No, I completely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think are some myths or even some misconceptions that come with sibling relationships? Oh, well, I've done a lot of blogs on this sort of thing. Yeah. (laughs) There are many misconceptions. So let me start with the biggest, (laughs) which is, I'm the only one who is estranged from my sibling. Well, we've already established that it's much more common than Mm -hmm. you recognize and most people recognize. And in fact, when I was working on my first book, Brothers, Sisters, Strangers, I would talk about the fact that I was researching sibling estrangement and people would lean in and sit up a little straighter because they all either were experiencing it or they knew somebody who was experiencing it and they were curious to know more. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one is there must be something wrong with me if I can't get along with my sibling. There are many factors that can sour a sibling relationship. A lack of shared interests, power Mm -hmm. struggles, personality disorders, bad chemistry. Um, No matter how serious or trivial the roots, sibling rejection ripples into many aspects of life. And this is something I was starting to touch on earlier. Sibling estrangement is not just about your brother not talking to you. Sibling Mm -hmm. estrangement permeates a being and it affects self-esteem, your ability to trust, even your physical well-being. And so suddenly that rejection kind of ripples out into so many aspects of your Mm -hmm. life and your social life. Um, But it's important to remember that you're much more than what your sibling thinks of you. Another one is that family always comes first. Well, family doesn't come first if it's toxic. You have to protect yourself. Yeah, no, 100%. I'm totally responsible for my sibling relationship. This is a really dangerous one. People who are deeply empathetic often hold on to this belief. Well, if your sibling happens to be narcissistic, they will use you and use that to gain power and you will find yourself enabling someone who you didn't want to enable. Yep. You know, yep. sometimes sometimes siblings are only concerned with his or her own issues, their own insecurities, 
and they try to dominate and gain power. And that's a real mess if you're an only sibling. Um, there's another, things will be different the next time we get together. There's, there's actually a, a psychological concept for this. It's called euphoric recall. And what it means is that you constantly are looking through rose colored glasses and exaggerating positive experiences while suppressing the negative side. And this feeds into this notion that things are going to improve, even though it's often very unlikely. So why do you think that we sort of tell ourselves that things will get better or it's not like them or they're just having a bad day? Why <laughs> is it that we just want to tell ourselves that instead of really looking at them and saying that, okay, this relationship is not that great? <laughs> Such a good question. <laughs> uh, we do it because we don't want to face the truth and we don't mm -hmm. want to face the truth because it hurts too much. Yep. Um, yep. 100%. So we, what we end up doing, which is really dangerous is exactly all the lines you just said, Oh, it's not that bad. He's just having a bad day. It'll be better tomorrow. He had a bad childhood, <laughs> whatever you can come up with. But these are all lines to enable mm -hmm. this kind of behavior. And at some point you have to take a hard look at what the relationship is and accept that this is all you're going to get. Yeah. Um, another one is I need to get along with my sibling for the sake, my parents' sake. You know, again, you're going to enable then your brothers or sisters power over you because you feel you have to do this for your parents. It's really important to set boundaries on this stuff. Mm -hmm. I can't be mourning a living person. That's simply not true. Uh, this is a complicated grief, which is marked with yearning and longing and emotional pain um, preoccupying thoughts. And in fact, a lot of people who are estranged ruminate about it all the time. They're trying to problem solve. Why don't we face it? Because we don't want to ruminate like that. It's very hard to stop that loop thinking. Um, only family can give me a true sense of belonging. You and I touched upon that a little bit before. Obviously, many people can give you the support you need and you need to broaden your thinking as to where you can get that love and who, with whom you can form a, a sustaining relationship. Yep. And all of those factors, all of those misconceptions seem to be so related to how, to us blaming ourselves for that toxicity or blaming ourselves for it not working out or just not really wanting to, like you said earlier, face the truth about the situation. Um, I mean, for the sake of the family is definitely one of the big ones that I have probably heard a couple of times being like, oh, my parents expect me to be, um, to look after my sister or to look, look after my brother or to be the carer for them. And because I think especially when it comes to the stigma of being the oldest child or the older one, it sort of becomes a responsibility for them to be the second caregiver, the secondary caregiver for everyone when in fact that's just not a, it's not a healthy relationship 
I think, in my opinion, to have a, to always be the parent in the sibling relationship. Right. I think there comes a time when you have to start caring for yourself Mm -hmm. and putting your own needs first. And the family tries very hard to hold itself together by putting the family's needs first. But sometimes those are not, uh, those are not going to address what your needs are and they're not going to protect yep. you. Yep. No, for sure. So what are some other things that make sibling relationships, especially in when it comes to adulthood, you're not sort of pressured by family to live together anymore. Um, what do you think makes it difficult for some people to maintain that relationship? Um, well, there are a lot of things that make it difficult, particularly if you were raised in a family, for example, where there are narcissists. Um, if your mm-hmm. parents were narcissists, in fact, a lot of estrangement has narcissistic roots. And so I'm not going to say all of it for sure, but there are some cases, many cases where either the sibling is a narcissist or the parents were a narcissist, um, children who were raised in chaotic and abusive or neglectful families run a great risk of sibling estrangement. If their parents were authoritarian and had a demanding and highly critical and shaming style of parenting, if they scapegoated or used favoritism and name calling, all of these things contributed to the environment in which you were raised. And a sense of long-term disconnection in childhood has been described as a precursor for estrangement in adulthood. So um, children, it's interesting, they have one of two reactions when they're raised in a traumatic and chaotic household. One is they bond deeply to give each other the support they needed, but more likely what they do is they step away to protect themselves. They don't want to be reminded of the triggers and they also shut down their emotions. So they've numbed themselves And really that affects every relationship that they will ever have unless they get Mm -hmm. treatment to stop that behavior. So what are some rules or maybe some ways that, or if any, if there's any way that can sort of maintain a healthy um, sibling relationship as adults and also add in the boundaries that you've sort of picked up in your own personal life? Well, I think one of the big problems is communication skills are not modeled in the home and then the children grow up and they don't know how to communicate or negotiate differences. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important whether you're trying to sustain a sibling relationship or if you're trying to reconcile a sibling relationship that you sit down together face to face, you listen without interrupting and without challenging each other's stories You acknowledge with empathy the other person's hurt or anger or alienation. You stress and act on a willingness and a desire and a hope to create a mutual bond. And you have to let go of your anger. And you have to be very committed to that. Now, having said all that, it's not going to work if it's just one of you. You You can't do it alone. You have to have both people willing to sit down together face to face and hear each other. Yep. And I think it sort of comes into play a lot when it um, when you're talking a little bit earlier about 
the two different sides of the story and it being understood differently. So having that understanding between the two definitely could have an impact, I guess. So actually, the model I just suggested to you is based upon a model that's used with warring sides and a genocide. So truth and reconciliation uh, programs. And the whole idea is you have to hear how somebody's been injured and what you've done to injure them. And you have to acknowledge your role in this. And that's what's lost in terms of communicating between um, sparring siblings or even sparring friends. Yep. No, it's not. It's funny. It's not that hard, but it is that hard. (laughs) People are not very good at sitting down face to face and really listening. And I don't mean thinking about what you're going to say in response to what they're saying. I'm saying absorbing what they're saying. Yeah. And I think that's a trouble with a lot of people when it comes to you listen to reply instead of listen to actually hear what the other person has gone through. And you just want to, and it comes with a lot of tendency, I guess, to be um, egoistic and the, the egoistic tendencies that come into play with, no, I'm right. Instead of like, you're wrong, I'm right kind of situation. And yeah, I can definitely see how that plays a huge role in that lack of communication about how the different journey that the both, no matter even if it's siblings, but it's just family members in itself have gone through in their sort of journey throughout their life. Right. What you're describing is simply defensiveness. Yeah. That's not listening. No. <laughs> No, we would love it to be because we'd love to. We'd love to always be right, but sometimes that is—that's not the case. No, it isn't. And um, you know, it's really unfortunate that we don't teach children around the world how to listen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like why do you have to learn? But we're not very good at it, and as a result, you can see the problems we have, whether it's in the family or in global politics. Yep. Yep. That definitely plays a huge role in how we, in how we interpret things. And like you said, um, sibling relationships from childhood, it's your first playmate. It's the first way that you learn how to communicate. And if that's not taught from there, then it's definitely had an effect later on in adulthood. Right. And if, And it's not just in the family. It extends well beyond the family. Yes. You know, I I just wanted to add a few other points to what I was saying earlier. Mm -hmm. The one goal in all of this is to seek understanding. And experts in general agree that there can be no meeting of minds unless there's, as I said, true, genuine listening. Um, You have to be able to give the other party the benefit of the doubt and assume that their interests are sincere and trustworthy and they have good intentions. So in other words, you have to take a leap of faith and trust to some extent that they are sincere. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when each party accepts the other's experiences and hears and validates their stories, then neither one feels devalued or shut out. And that's the problem with estrangement. 
that those of us who have been cut off feel shut out. We feel that we have been rendered voiceless because we have no opportunity to even make our own case to the sibling who has decided to shun us. Now, like I said, there are many cases where shunning is necessary, but I hope that before you shun, you'll at least have tried to communicate in some, uh, in the best way possible. Yep. Yep. And I think that's, that's an important point to have. And I'm really glad and thank you for bringing that up because I think that is, it is definitely important. Um, so going into the next part, we like to have a called practice and habits. Um, I know we've mentioned this a little earlier, but what's a practice that you do to reconcile your sibling relationship? You know, it's interesting. Um, first of all, I think it's different because my only sibling is a brother and <laughs> men and women communicate in different styles. Yep. So what was most successful with my brother in reconciling, and of course this took place over the course of a year, and that's what Brother, Sister, Strangers is about. Um, we met every week and we often went for a bike ride. And mm-hmm. because it was an action and something we enjoyed, that would open us up to conversation, which we might not have had just over a coffee. And so sometimes doing something together Maybe you did something as children together that you enjoy, golfing, I don't know, playing tennis, mm-hmm. um, whatever it is. My brother and I did some biking, not a lot, but we got into the habit of biking together. And of course, because it wasn't, um, you know, racing, we could yeah. talk and connect in a way that we, like I said, wouldn't have done over a coffee. Um, we were able to discuss our estrangement. Now, there's a whole debate, you know, can you reconcile and not discuss your issues? Can you, uh, do you, must you talk about these things? In my case, I needed to know. I had a really hard time trusting him again. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to understand what this was all about, why it happened, and how can I be sure it will never happen again? Now, I do want to say that 40% of relationships lapse back into estrangement. So I was yep. very fearful that I was headed right back where I started. And I did not have the stomach for that. Yep. Um, sure. but, so we did talk things out. And once I understood him better, and like I said, this took a year. Uh, and, and really, if you're curious about those conversations, you can read the book, which each chapter is the is the connection that my brother and I are developing in the wake of all of this betrayal and mistrust. And then, of course, uh, after I discuss what's happening in our relationship, so the, the memoir part of the story, I then address some of the sibling estrangement issues. So, for example, um, this is kind of a funny story, but in the middle of the estrangement, I get a notification that Scott Schumer is now following me on Twitter. And I'm like, what? who, what? And I couldn't believe it. So I go and look to see, is this really even my brother? And there was an empty picture. He hadn't put up a picture, so I couldn't mm-hmm. tell. So then I looked down 
and I saw him talking about the Chicago Bears, the football team, and I realized it had to be him because <laughs> that much I knew that he was a big Bears <laughs> fan. Well, anyway, I had a mixture of emotions about this. So on the one hand, it was nice, I guess, that he was thinking about me. Uh, on the other hand, I felt kind of angry that, what, now you can follow me uh, just because you've decided that you want in on my life a little bit? I felt very resentful. You know, I'm your sibling. Either you're going to talk to me or you're not. Well, anyway, when I tell this story in the book, I then go into a large discussion about social media and estrangement, which is a very <laughs> complicated territory because... Yep. You are going to get hurt if you get on social media and see all the parties that you've been excluded from. So yep. um, anyway, I mean, the, you know, sibling estrangement, like I said, it is not contained. It ripples through your life. And so that's just one example and gives you some idea of how I take some of what happened in my own life and try to reflect in a larger way on uh, social media or um, identity or trust issues, that sort of thing. No, I I definitely think, I mean, social media does play a huge role in, um, I mean, it gives you eyes into someone else's life and it, looking into your sibling's life can be very complicated, especially for the person who notices it like you did. And it just definitely adds that kind of, I mean, I can definitely understand the frustration there with people peeking into your life when they try to disappear, when they choose to disappear out of it. So it definitely adds that complication to it. But um, so going back into the bike rides and the activity that you decided, both decided to share together, how do you think doing that really impacted your family, the whole idea of family that you have, and then the perception in life? Well, first of all, let me say I have three children and my, I have a mom who's still alive. And my three children had never had this uncle in his their lives. And they were very suspicious of him. And they did not want for me to get involved with him again. They felt I was only going to get hurt again. So I'm not just dealing with what I want to do. I'm dealing with what other people want me to do as well. My yeah. mother was in great pain over the estrangement because she would be invited to his house or she would be invited to my house. And whatever she chose to do, she knew she was going to hurt the other child because the other one wasn't invited. And so she felt very ripped apart and caught in the middle of this thing. When we finally started talking again, she was greatly relieved. But um, in the book, I talked to her and she talks quite a bit about what it felt like to be caught in this. And it is not easy for anyone involved. And I can only imagine how I would feel if two of my children did not speak. I mean, I think I'd knock their heads together. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I definitely think that it's such a, it's such a strange Thing to facilitate, especially knowing that other family members have contact with them, and then it's only you that's that's not. It's it's it leaves a very strange feeling 
um, not even going through it myself, I can still under- definitely understand and empathize with a lot of people who are sort of facing that at it the moment. So much. It <laughs> hurts so much to hear about how his kids were doing or what they were doing and not yeah. having the opportunity to develop this relationship with the only two nephews on my side of the family. Um, I just yeah. felt very isolated. And um, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which I'm relieved that he and I are talking, not the least of which is I don't ha- carry that pain anymore. And I want to say this, Dina, as well. Um, when I was cut off from my only brother, I felt like there was an acid drip on the back of my head, which basically mm-hmm. capped my ability to be happy. I could only experience joy to a certain extent because mm-hmm. in the back of my mind, I was always reminded that I have a brother who wants nothing to do with me. And yeah, it is a profound sadness and rejection that is impossible to ignore. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. I can definitely um, see how it would be. I mean, I couldn't even imagine facing that with my own with my own sister. As annoying as she is at this day and age, um, <laughs> having her in my life is definitely is definitely one of the points that does make my life pretty important. So yeah, having imagining that scenario in my own way definitely um, yeah, I can see how it would be very hard. You know, so Dina, with- what we didn't t- what we didn't talk about is. If you no longer are identifying as a sister and you're Mm -hmm. no longer a sister-in-law and you're no longer an aunt and your children have no cousins. And so you can see how this trickles down. And by the way, um, it's very sad because these models are replicated generation after generation. Well, dad didn't talk to his brother, so I... Doesn't, I don't have to talk to my sister, you know, that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, it's, I mean, not just the, just the conversation you had about having it, having a ripple, like you don't have it. There's all these other family titles that sort of mean something and then suddenly don't. And mm-hmm. you sort of wonder, why doesn't it mean anything? Why should it mean anything? And then the whole family structure just sort of falls apart. So, yeah, for sure. It would be, it definitely has a long-lasting effect. Right. And and as I was saying to you earlier, it, it permeates so many aspects. So you and I just identified how it affects identity. Yep. Yep. can definitely see that. I can definitely see how it, um, I mean, seeing it as sister, seeing it as a brother is one thing, but having it affect generations below, like not having an aunt, not having all of those other aspects, it definitely leaves. And knowing that the family are still somehow somewhat connected, um, it's sort of like a long estranged generation as well, like a whole generation just sort of just lost. Right. Not only lost, but you lose so much information. Yeah. Who you are. Um, yeah. How you fit into the world. Your medical history. You know, so many things that are really quite important, ultimately. You yeah. Know, no, um, I definitely think so. 
we didn't really talk about the risk factors. And one of the things in my research that shocked me is that there are actually risk factors for estrangement. So we can, I'm going to rattle off real quickly some of the reasons and the risk factors for estrangement. We talked a little bit about family trauma. And actually, Mm -hmm. in my case, I told you about my mother as a Holocaust refugee, and that was traumatizing for her, which was passed down probably genetically as well as um, environmentally. I write a little bit about all of this in a memoir called Motherland, where um, my mother and I went on this trip back to Germany when I was six months pregnant with my third child, and that was to this (laughs) little town. And there I finally discovered some of the trauma that had shaped her. Another one is parental favoritism. There's a lot of this, you know, the golden child and the scapegoat. And when you have that kind of setup, you're already in trouble. We talked a little bit about poor communication skills. That's a big one. Family values, judgments, and choices. This one we didn't talk about yet, but it's very, very important. And it's this idea that you might make choices and a partner or maybe it's not a choice for, but you are a certain way sexually, which cannot be accepted in the family. Um, but there, whatever ways in which you might be different from what the family value system is, you may be cast out. And that's very, very painful. Of course, one of those things is political differences. And we're seeing more and more of that right now. A lot of times when you have addiction and mental health issues, you have problems with estrangement. When you have money issues, money and family is the worst mix you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a big risk factor. And then, of course, I did mention narcissism in the family. Yep, I can definitely. Yeah, those are some pretty big circumstances in order to pretty big impacts on having uh, estrangements for sure. Um, So now we're sort of going to talk about the questions from audiences that we've gotten. Um, Honestly, we've gotten a lot. (laughs) So I'm going to pick ones that are the best, that are the best to talk about and that we haven't already talked about. Okay. Um, So what are some practical tips to improve relationships with siblings who are separated in adulthood? Well, as I said earlier, um, Sometimes estrangement is, a, a, is something that's necessary. So it's important to keep in mind. First of all, I think you need to assess the relationship. What can you really expect from this relationship? How important is it to you and to your family member? Um, can you set aside your anger and pain and resentment and that led to the distance or the uh, break in the relationship so that you can change the pattern of relating Um, And what if you can't change it? Do you want to resume the relationship anyway? Do I have the time and energy and emotional resilience and support of other loved ones to reconcile or rebuild the relationship? And most importantly, are you going to compromise so much of yourself if you try to sustain this thing that you're going to lose yourself? And that's a real danger. If you decide you want to keep the relationship going, Sometimes it's important to have what I call a limited connection. And what that means is you have very strong boundaries, very low expectations, and an escape hatch 
at every family event. <laughs> in other words, yeah. you know how you're going to get out of a conversation that gets uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that is an amazing system to learn and to have in place. Um, this sort of ties into another, the other question is what are some benefits of maintaining and improving relationship with siblings during adulthood? I mean, I think there are great benefits and I can speak from both sides of this because obviously I lived without it for so long and now am enjoying a connection with my brother. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, it's nice to have a place to belong. We have a human need to belong. And Mm -hmm. I have rebuilt my relationship with my brother and I have made some connection with my nephews. And I feel more of a sense of well-being and peace because of that. Um, I don't ruminate anymore, which I did quite a bit while I was estranged from him. The brain tends to go to, what did I do? How can I fix this? Why is this happening? And a lot of times it has nothing to do with you. And that was actually one of the cold truths when I finally understood what had happened to my brother. And then, you know, a lot of times when a sibling decides that they want nothing to do with you, believe it or not, it's not necessarily about you. Yep. Yep. And I think that is something that you don't, you don't always see. It's got nothing to do with you. And I think um, you always blame, I think from what we've talked about, you always end up blaming yourself for it and wondering what you could have done better, what you've done wrong, when it could just be them, them wanting to want that cut, them wanting to disconnect. Um, So does sibling rivalry still exist in adulthood or is it just something that is a thing during childhood? No, it absolutely exists in adulthood. Siblings throughout their entire lives compete over looks and achievements. And um, I'm afraid that it's a life sentence. Yep. You're stuck in it for a life then. There's no way out of it. Right. There are, there are all sorts of jealousies that are often unresolved. And, um, you know, that's your goal as an adult is to try to mitigate some of those feelings and handle them like an adult rather than like a child. Yes. Yes. And I think it's really hard. I mean, seeing as you've grown up with that person trying to deal with it in an adult way is very difficult when you've known them since you were kids. Yeah. You tend to regress. Yeah. So you go right back to, I I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whatever you said, but yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating aspect of siblings that, and you know, it happens with your parents too. Sometimes that when you return to the nest, you return to behaviors that you thought you were way past because you had outgrown them, but not necessarily. We slip back. Yes. And it's, it's very easy to do so when they still treat you like kids, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and your sibling might still treat you like the kid's sister too. Exactly. So um, what is considered a healthy boundary in a sibling relationship? 
Well, first of all, I would say that a sibling should treat you the way a friend treats you. And if you're being insulted or abused in any way, a healthy boundary is stopping it. You should mm-hmm. not put up just because they're blood with mistreatment. So if you wouldn't take it from a friend, don't take it from a sibling either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we give, I think that special treatment definitely comes into play really easily because they say, oh, it's okay. We're related when they're literally like swearing at you or calling you names that you wouldn't let anyone call you. So, right. And I think, yeah. that, I think you have to be your own best agent and say, when a sibling starts all that, we need to stop here, cool off and talk about this another day. Yes. Yes, it's 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 very true. Yeah, <laughs> it's very hard when you really just want to punch them out. But um, yeah, I think that's the best adult way to deal with it. Right, you're not ten anymore. <laughs> no, I would love to be that, but no. <laughs> um, so is it common for adult sibling relationships to be complicated? Yes, absolutely. Um very complicated. And a lot of it is that you know each other's buttons so well, don't you? You know exactly how to make them mad. You you have a lot of inside information and there are a lot of jealousies and rivalries. And if parents are involved, you may be vying for attention or favorite position. And all of that makes it much more complicated than any old friend. Yep. I can definitely, I can definitely see that coming into play and definitely taking a life of its own when it comes to relationships. Because like we said, you wouldn't let anyone else get away with things that you let your sibling get away with. So. Right. And that, again, I, I ask your listeners to be extremely aware of how they are justifying their sibling's behavior because we so quickly and easily edge into enabling. In other yes. words, oh, he had a bad day. Oh, but, you know, whatever excuse you can come up with, which uh, gets them off the hook for behavior, you have to ask yourself, is that really where you want to go with this? Do you really want to indulge this behavior? Because you're going to get more of it. Yep. No, for sure. Um, okay. So the last part that we have is a little open mic session gives you a chance to talk to the guests, to talk to the audience about anything that you feel passionately about. Um, and so we've got about five minutes left. So I would love to give the floor to you and let you have that chance with the audience to share something that you, uh, you would love to share. Well, I guess I'm going to stay with this topic. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Um, and the reason I'm on my soapbox is because it is so underacknowledged and it's such an important relationship. And so I, and, and, the, and then the third piece of this is there's a tremendous stigma and shame tied when you cannot get along with your own sibling. And, uh, you know, people would come up to me when I was estranged from my brother and they'd ask how my brother was. And of course, my face would scramble. And the first thing I would do is try to jump off that topic and ask, oh, how's your brother doing? 
because I didn't want to go anywhere with it and I didn't know how to answer it. And I also was so ashamed and felt so judged by the fact that I couldn't sustain a relationship with my own brother. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon that I noticed. If I were to say to you um, that I'm divorced, you probably wouldn't even flinch. If I say to you, I can't get along with my own mother, you'd probably roll your eyes and in agreement. But when I say to you, I can't get along with my own brother, you likely have many questions about me. What's wrong mm -hmm. with you? Why can't you get along with him? Maybe you're not trustworthy. Maybe you're not a good candidate for a companion. And so you can see how it raises fundamental questions about who you are when you say you cannot connect or sustain this connection with your sibling. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and I think the, the other piece that we talked about, but I, I keep coming back to, is that this is not just about a rejection by a sibling. I've had a lot of opportunity to interview and to participate in support groups um, and people carry this pain so heavily. It is a complicated grief and they ruminate and they don't know how to stop it. And you know, there are no easy ways. You can look up on the internet how to stop ruminating. And I've actually written pieces about it, but it's very difficult to execute. And um, so what I'm saying to you is it really affects well-being. And when these relationships are cut off for decades, it's, 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 it's a real cross to bear. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's such a big stigma when it comes to siblings, though, like specifically? Um, you know, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons. There is an expectation that you are going to have this lifelong friend and a sibling and a brother or sister. And mm -hmm. as we talked about earlier, there are very high expectations tied to the family. And yep. people are very uncomfortable once you start to violate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely like, I mean, talking about this, it's a lot more, it's a lot more important than I ever thought it really was. Like you hear about, okay, yeah, I don't talk to, um, I don't talk to my dad. Like you said, I don't talk to my mother. I don't talk to my friend. I don't talk to this kind of person, but talking to a sibling it's just kind of like it feels like this is an inevitable relationship like you're stuck with your sibling for the rest of your life when that's right. not necessarily the case right it was what we were talking about earlier is, is the yeah. one relationship that is expected to be sustaining for a lifetime and yes. so if you don't sustain it what's wrong with you yeah and i i guess not all siblings end up being best friends and I think that's the kind of thing that you kind of expect siblings to be like oh you're going to be best friends for the rest of your life like you have an inbuilt best friend when most of the time you don't even get along right and you know I always would joke with my brother in recent years and tell him you know he and I couldn't be more different 
And I always mm-hmm. say to him, the gene pool is vast, you know, <laughs> you can't predict this is what you got. <laughs> you know, you try to make the best of it, but we're really an odd match. Yeah. yeah. And there are a lot it's- of odd matches. Exactly. And I think you don't realize it until you get older as well. Like, cause when you're in the same environment, like I think you've mentioned earlier, the environment definitely plays a role in your relationship. So having a separate two environments in two different worlds, now you're able to grow in your own space. You sort of also don't realize the, um, the lack of familiarity you have with your sibling now because you've just grown up to be two different people. You know, you said something and and I realized I wanted to say this earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, There are really vulnerable moments in a lifetime where these sibling relationships become rather perilous. And um, it's any time that the roles change. So adolescence, one sibling is going to individuate, create his or her own identity, leave home for college or a job, change, and that changes the sibling connection. Marriage is another one. You know, I can't tell you how many times a new brother or new sister-in-law come into the family and they don't promote relationships, and that can cause a lot of divide. So that's a big adjustment. You know, maybe the new daughter-in-law doesn't fit in. Maybe they don't like each other. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's problematic. The birth of a baby, a sibling begins to focus on his or her own new family and other family members may feel betrayed or abandoned. Divorce or an illness, again, um, sometimes the responsibilities of those things, physical or emotional or financial, of helping a sick or divorcing sibling uh, may overwhelm one of the siblings. And that creates a lot of resentment and an uneven shared burden. And then the worst one of all is parental illness, death, and inheritance. And at that stage, there's a last ditch competition for power, love, and family loyalty, and conflicts Mm -hmm. arise over everything imaginable from healthcare and payments for an elderly facility. And then, of course, who's going to inherit what and what family treasures and assets each person will get. And so that can create a lot of conflict as well. Yep. I I can definitely see. And if you've been estranged and then suddenly you have to interact on those issues, it can be even more damaging. Yep. I can definitely see how that, that would impact, especially when it's the, like you said, it's the first conversation you've had in a while. It's, you have nothing to relate to that person about anymore. They kind of, they turned into a stranger so quickly since even though you've known them since you're children, it's still um, definitely not something that you would ever expect to be in that situation with. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and, and then, you know, lastly, and we didn't talk all that much about this, but I mentioned it earlier When you have a sibling who is a narcissist or has narcissistic tendencies, and of course, none of us can diagnose somebody, but if you see these very um, self-absorbed tendencies and self-centeredness, 
it can be so difficult to forge any connection with some of these people because they're really all about domination and power. And it's almost untenable. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think narcissism definitely, um, I've, I've seen it firsthand, uh, how damaging that could be and how much it tears a relationship apart. So I can definitely see how, um, how impactful it is on family members and not only, not even just the two directly, I mean, distant family members, distant relatives, um, people who are also related, it can definitely turn into a traumatic, in a very strange traumatic experience. Right. Yeah. Right. And actually I've written a number of blog posts about narcissism being behind some of these estrangements. And um, a lot of times, as I said to you earlier, siblings have to make the choice to cut off to protect themselves from this sort of toxicity. Yep. Yep. And I think mental health, especially now that mental health has become a more spoken about topic, I think mm-hmm. I think you'll see even more relationships and siblings sort of get detached in a way to protect their own mental health, their own well-being, their own situation, and just someone who no longer really applies to their own current lifestyle. Yes, and it's really difficult when you have somebody like that in the family to walk this line between your own self-protection and the family's Mm -hmm. needs. Yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. So I want to thank you so much, friend, for joining me on the episode today and to talk about this. It's honestly something that I hope that will be more spoken about topic and will definitely have a huge impact on the audience and create a conversation about it and probably um, hopefully get others to sort of think about their own relationship and kind of see their own boundaries that can be implemented as they grow into adulthood and yeah just sort of take take all of this um information and do something with it so um yeah I really hope that everyone does sort of learn anything learn something from this um so if there's a way if sort of an audience member would like to get into contact you is there a way that they can do Yes, of course. Uh, I can be reached through my website, which is my whole name, fernschumerchapman.com. I'm also available, fernschumer at gmail.com. I do a lot of presenting on various topics, including being the child of a Holocaust refugee, as well as this issue of sibling estrangement. And by the way, Dina, they're very related (laughs) Um, wow, it, may, really? it may seem like, well, why is she going in those two directions? As I mentioned to you earlier, trauma is a risk factor for sibling estrangement. So what happened originally when my mother was an unaccompanied minor at the age of 12 fleeing Nazi Germany and her trauma of the losses she endured and how she coped, which wasn't very well, uh, ultimately trickled down through the family and affected my brother and me. And 
you know, there were a lot of things that I just talked about here. Some of these risk factors were right in front of me in my own family. I'm only happy that at this point, we have been able to transcend some of it and reconcile and sustain actually for over a decade, uh, our current connection. And that's been a wonderful success for both of us. And I think both of us have felt more balanced, even though we're so different, we derive a sense of comfort from knowing the other one is always there. That's, that's so great to hear. And it's such a great story to that you're able to share with everyone. And I mean, not just today, but in future years and in every other work that you do, including the workbook that you're, you're developing. So I'm really excited to actually see that come into motion. And I hope that I do get a chance to definitely get to view it someday. And I'll definitely keep posted, um, keep up to date with that. So yeah, I really want to thank you for being on the show today and to talk about this. Um, and like I said, if there's any way that to get into contact with you, the guest, the link for your website will be down in the description below or somewhere above in the description if you're looking for it. Um, yeah, so thank you so well, thank, much for, for joining me. Thank you, Dina. And I just want to say that Brothers, Sisters, Strangers is available at many bookstores. Uh, it actually came out in 2021. It's certainly available online wherever you buy books. Uh, the Sibling Estrangement Journal, which is the workbook, for exploring your own experience through writing will be available within the next month and that will be on Amazon. Oh, that's great. I'll definitely, I'll definitely look that up next month then. All right. Thank you. Um, thank you everyone so much for listening. And I hope that you've definitely learned as much as I have. I've definitely learned so much. This is why we're here today. Um, yeah. Thanks everyone for uh, tuning in and uh, good day, everyone. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast, produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.